Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I do feel like this, what we're doing actually here, is a little bit of the tikkun. Actually, just people coming together and people coming together to think and to learn feels to me like a big part of what the tikkun is. So I, I hate to disappoint in advance. If you think I'm going to talk about the fiery uh, issues of the day, um, you'll be disappointed. Instead, I'm going to look at what might be interesting to some or boring to some, which is the history of an idea, of how an idea evolves. Um, because oftentimes we make the mistake, myself certainly included, of thinking that there's actually a Jewish answer to a question or a Jewish idea which has uh, standed the test of time. But every idea existed within its historical and cultural context um, and evolved throughout that period of time, um, literally every idea. And so we're only going to get a snapshot about how this concept itself, um, the way that we use it today is only a few decades old. Um, but actually has a very, a very rich history to it. So Rabbi Nachman says, if you believe in the possibility of ruin, then you also must believe in the possibility of repair. So the very beginning is to ask, what does this con- word tikkun mean? What does it mean to fix or to repair? Um, and do we believe in such an idea? Um, There are many who believe the world is cyclical. Essentially, everything just repeats itself, right? This emerges in Greek thought um, that um, there is nothing that changes. Everything, there's nothing new under the sun, it says in Ecclesiastes, right? So this actually, it's not such a foreign idea that things don't change. Um, Everything is just, you know, some people say, I stopped reading the the newspaper for a year or watching the news and nothing changed. It's all the same stuff. Right? So there's an idea out there that actually nothing is new. Um, we're not in a state of decline. We're not in a state of progress. It's just the way the world has always been, really. Uh, human nature is not evolving. So some believe that, actually, that ruin is not real and that repair certainly is not real. Um, there's others who believe um, that actually we're in a constant state of decline, moral decline and human decline, and others who argue that we're in a state of progress. But this notion of, is repair itself possible? Um, It's also a question of, um, not just of progress, but can you fix a break? Can something that's broken actually be fixed? This comes up in relationships all the time. When a relationship has basically broken, can it be repaired with a parent-child, with a spouse, um, or the like? Um, that's, That's a big question. Um, and many people have thought about that in their lives. Um, Or um, uh, after a death of a loved one, can one actually heal from that or just cope with that, right? One of my uh, 
Um, one of my teachers once said, and I haven't thought about this in years, so I hope I get it right, um, that when a, a parent passes away and the lights go off, the light can never be turned back on. You just kind of learn how to get around in the dark. Which is another way of saying you can't really repair such a break. You can just learn how to kind of cope with it. Um, or if someone is a survivor of any kind, might be a, a similar type of situation. So the first question is, what is tikkun? Is it possible? Do we believe in it? The second is, what is olam? And y'all started to wrestle with that already. What is this notion of a world? Um, how big is the world? Is the world um, myself and a projection of self, ultimately, on everything around me? Is the world my family, my community, my country? Is the world planet Earth? Right? Is it just this galaxy? Is it just this moment in time and everything that's included, or does it include the past and the future? So this idea of what is repair and this idea of what is a world are things we'd want to begin with if we actually want to um, examine the concept of what is possible and what we can believe in. So I'm going to pass around some, some source sheets. Um, I, would, um, um, I made the mistake, I guess, of passing them around before uh, we're kind of done with our kind of intro. <laughs> so maybe hold off at looking too deeply at it. There's a lot more there than we're going to look at, but as always, it'll serve as a resource for those working on some of these issues. So let me lay out a little bit of the history to kind of give the, um, give the overall before we get into the, into the nitty-gritty. It's going to begin, this concept is going to begin in the text um, with at, uh, it, within a legal context. That repair happens... Um, not through some notion of relationships or spirituality or of activism. Repair happens through repairing the natural order through the power of law. Okay? We'll see how that plays out Talmudically and in Maimonides. And then we move to the cosmological rather quickly. We move to the cosmological in Lurianic Kabbalah. Right? So in 16th century Sfat, um, the, the, the Ari, or the Arizal, um, is going to have a really powerful concept which we'll, which we'll come back to. But essentially, are, 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 how many of you are familiar with the idea of Shvirat HaKelim? Is that a phrase that, uh, okay, for, that resonates? Okay, Shvirat HaKelim, essentially the Arizal kind of invents this idea which animates modern Kabbalah, modern Jewish mysticism as we know it, which is that there was a break of the vessels. Um, there was a break of the vessel, Shvirat HaKelim, and that there was a process of tzimtzum, that God essentially departed from the world, um, and in such, the divine light was contained in these utensils, which were then broken. Some of that light returned back to its divine source, just a moment, returned back to its divine source, and some of it became connected to these broken shards. And our job as human beings, essentially, is to repair the scattered and shattered vessels. Um, and um, part of the problem is that in, in this kind of why a lot of postmodernists like this uh, Kabbalistic idea is that evil and good become intertwined because of these klipot, these shells that kind of get uh, mixed. And the evil is called sitra akra. And in this Kabbalistic sense of how the world works, um, the good gets trapped within these evil shards. And our job is to bring Mashiach, is to bring a messianic repaired world. And we do that essentially 
through performing mitzvot with kavanah, uh, doing um, good deeds, ritualistic and ethical, with certain intentionality. Now, that, as we're going to see, that's a very different concept that we saw Talmudically with, um, with this notion of repair. Then as we get the influence of humanism, we're going to get the Musar movement, the, the uh, ethical development movement, where we're going to see someone like Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder, say, perhaps his most famous quote, first I tried to repair the world and realized I couldn't, so I tried to repair my community. And then I realized I couldn't, so I tried to repair my family. And I realized I couldn't, so now I try to repair myself. And that's an interesting shift from an enlightenment, which argues actually um, the, the individual is very powerful, not just the king, but the individual in a democratic context, context is very powerful, to actually saying, actually, we're not so clear how much power there is to the individual. Okay, so that's going to, um, and then it's going to emerge in my, an early Zionism. Early Zionism, as we'll see in Rav Kook and Ashlag, who's a Kabbalist, um, is early Zionism as opposed to the next generation, Rav Kook's son, Rav Kook's son, Svi Yehuda, is a huge particularist, not interested in Gentiles. Rav Kook I is a universalist, right? His son, and his son edits his works and kind of tweaks a lot of that. But Zionism for Rav Kook and the early Zionists was about a universalistic good which was achieved through an, the, the, the hope of the nation state and that this nation state had a crucial role to play in that, in that global drama. Um, this is Zionism pre-state, Right? Some of them didn't even actually believe in a state as we know it, um, but believed in the enterprise of a return to the land to create a model just state. We can debate later if that has been achieved or not. Um, I'm sure there's various views in the room. Then we will ultimately get to the 1940s, Mordechai Kaplan, Dushkin, Bardeen, if you've been to the Brandeis Bardeen Center in LA, with the Bardeen, who then create a whole curriculum of tikkun olam, getting closer to how we know it today. And then really in the 1950s, reform movement takes off in a, in a whole different context. Now, what happens at that time? Two different things. One is post-Holocaust theology. The Holocaust is a major rupture in 20th century philosophy, and obviously in the Jewish world. And the question is, does that, is that rupture um, uh, fixable? And so you'll have someone like uh, Emil Fackenheim, whose whole theology is about that we have to reassess everything post-rupture, essentially. And that authentic action done without naivete of radical evil, where we break philosophically from um, absolutes into the world of grays and complexity, and yet within that era of skepticism, that we don't break away from um, authentic action. We're not paralyzed within, with, um, uh, within skepticism. And I'll take, I'll take questions and comments in just a moment before we actually jump into the text. And then you'll get someone like Emmanuel Levinas, who wants to reground ethics in the concrete, move away from the metaphysics, because the Enlightenment is now fa is a failure, right? That the most enlightened society in Europe could, could commit such atrocities. We need to reassess everything um, and move from the metaphysical concepts into the concrete, the power of the face. And so the question is, does this concept of tikkun olam, however we understand it, have an answer to anything? Does it provide us any path ethically? Does it, what does it offer us in terms of a religious framework? What does it offer us in terms of, like, what is actually the answer to this rupture? Is the answer that we reroute ourselves in ethics? Is it religion? Is it the United Nations? We need a global order 
to kind of put things in place? Do, is it military? Does never again mean IDF has a strong military? Does it mean demilitarization? Remove, moving away from militarization globally, right? So there's a whole bunch of different theologies and philosophies that emerge from this rupture um, in the name of, of repairing the world. The last question I'll put out there before I take some thoughts and comments and questions to kind of put on the table is, is this concept of repair present looking? Are we looking to repair the moment or are we looking to repair a future, right? Um, and part of that actually is about a theology of messianism. Is tikkun olam a messianic vision that we're actually tr believe in a utopia that we can achieve? Um, and is this uh, eschatological? Is it redemptive? Is it redemptive? So Karl Marx, who we think of as a secularist, is also a messianist in, in that he's holding a utopia of a vision, um, which is going to be very different than a capitalistic model, of course, um, and very different than a biblical model of economics, um, but also with deep similarities, um, where he believes in a utopia that, that there can be a repair that's achievable. Okay, uh, your hand was up first. Yeah. Yes. Right, yes, right, right. Okay, beautiful, yeah. Leonard Cohen um, uh, has, ha, has a lot of deep Torah in his, in his music, that's for sure. Okay, other, other thoughts or questions or something you're hoping to explore during our, our time together? Okay, so, oh yes, please, yeah. We're, we're not gonna fix, you know, this generation, we're not gonna fix anything. And going back to the quotations, you know, uh, we may not see the tree, but it's up to us to plant and take care of it. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, so so we have to be, I don't even know if it's the next generation that we have to worry about. Because they, you know, I thought that the me generation was the 80s and 90s and all of that, but we're into a, such a me generation now mm -hmm. that we have to, I think we have to get the kids more than the uh, millennials and all of that because, you know, 45% of the millennials don't have the Holocaust. Okay, all right, great. So, so there's two things you're really bringing up here. One is um, that oftentimes a generation defines its repair by the break of the previous generation, right? Um, just like a child seeks to distance themselves from a parent. Even if they love them, they want to be different from them. So too, that happens generationally, all the time. It, it, that's how it's playing out in um, Israeli Jewish life, certainly how it's playing out in American Jewish life. Um, in... in um, in all kinds of ways. And the second thing I think you're bringing up is the question of, is tikkun primarily um, done through the self or done through the collective? Um, is a me generation gonna bring a unique tikkun that might be different than, the, uh, than a collectivist generation? Okay, so let's start with our first source here in the Mishnah. A reminder that the Mishnah is the first uh, part of the Talmud. Um, it, is, uh, it is written by what we call the Tanaim, and then, and then the commentary of the Gemara, the second part of the Talmud, written by the Amarayim, um, is the commentary upon them. And this is really the emergence of Judaism. That shouldn't sound too radical, that Judaism is invented in the first century, first and second century, but it really is. Judaism as we know it, as a, as a legalistic ethical tradition, a post-prophetic tradition, is really invented by the rabbis. 
after, because the model of a priestly temple Judaism, although there's some striving to return back to that today, and I find myself saying certain prayers with some tension uh, that that should return uh, as well, um, but um, is really a very different, that's ancient, that's really ancient Israelite culture, which is rather different than Judaism as we know it post-temple. Um, and some actually want to suggest that there should be a new era now that emerges, um, uh, which is, uh, you, can, uh, you can talk to David Lieberman about some of those ideas, about what the next era would look like. Um, in a, uh, because actually, if you think about it, um, th this, this last generation, you could almost define in some ways as, as synagogue, as, uh, as synagogue Judaism. Uh, I mean, it's much more complicated than that. But when you look at the valley and you have 10 to 15% who affiliate with a synagogue, you might actually say, should prayer be the primary instrument? Um, and I don't know what the answer is to that, but has, has prayer as we know it failed? Um, or do we want to blame the customer? Uh, the customer doesn't appreciate prayer. If they only appreciate it, so we can go either way. Okay, so here the Mishnah in Gitin. Gitin is the tractate that deals with divorce. Um, and actually that's relevant to this source. And we could spend the whole session on this source, but I was, I, but I, but I went to, I went to yeshivas for six years. That, um, that where you had fifty sources in the course of an hour, which was a, a really silly pedagogical model, but I never broke from it. And so we have tons of sources. Of it's sometimes breadth over depth. Um, actually, you'll see some of the folks who come to VVM, they come with like three sources and some come with like a packet of 50. And you can usually tell how they were trained based upon that. Okay, so this is a fascinating source. Um, so so let, let's take a quick vote. How many vote for me to read the sources in the interest of time and consistency? And how many vote for going around where various people read? Okay, no one votes for that. Okay, interesting. So maybe we should ask every speaker to take that vote. Uh, maybe folks don't like the, the reading process. Okay, so it means you have to hear my voice more, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, my, my, my kids remind me on the way to school each morning that my voice is too present. <laughs> but I'm glad you all appreciate it. Maybe you hear it less. Okay, so here's what happens in the Mishnah of Gitten. Um, okay, one who is half slave and half a free person... He serves his master one day and then himself one day, the words of Beit Hill. Oh, what does that even mean, half free, half slave? Right, that's like an existential question. What does it mean in our own lives that we're half conformist and half, you know, uh, free or that we're half nature, half nurture or that we're half um, conditioned by all, uh, set by all the conditions in, of determinism around us and half free? But let's bracket the philosophy and say legally, what does it mean to be half slave, half free in such a context? Um, uh, actually, though, in American history, it was an interesting concept also of what does it mean if, if you were a runaway. Um, um, okay, but that's Beit Hillel. He serves his master one day, then himself one day. Beit Shammai said, you set it right to contem. You do a tikkun, you repair it for his master. For himself, you didn't set it right. To marry a maidservant isn't possible because half of him is free. We got to fix this, Shammai says. The house of Shammai says. To marry a free woman isn't possible because half of him is still slave. Half slave can't marry a free woman in a slave culture. So would you cancel his obligation to reproduce? He's obligated, right? The, um, um, the mitzvah to give, the, the, the obligation for sexual pleasure is upon the man. The woman doesn't have to provide sexual pleasure to the, to the man. 
he has to provide sexual pleasure. The obligation to reproduce is upon the man, not upon the woman, in, in, the, in the Talmud. So they have different obligations within the sexual act. And he is obligated, peru or vu, to have children. That's on him. Right? Maybe that's because they think the maternal drive already wants children, and the man might only think of a child as an economic asset of who's going to continue the work of the fields, whereas she views her legacy as children. I don't know. We can keep the, you know, the, the, the gendered assumptions around why we have children or why we don't to, um, uh, for later. But isn't it true that the world wasn't created except for bearing fruit and reproducing? It says in Isaiah, not to be wasted, God create the earth, to be settled upon, did God form her? Interesting question today about overpopulation. Over, um, okay, so Shammai says, wait a minute, Hillel. We need, people need to reproduce. And you're going to deny him that right because he's half slave? Rather, because of setting right the world, because of repairing the world, they force his master, who must make him a free person, and write a contract for him to redeem the remaining half of his value. And Beit Hillel turned to teach according to the words of Beit Shammai. Now, from a legal perspective, this is fascinating because almost always we follow who? Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel is the dominant. That's why we don't have a college institution for, for lost Jews on campus that we're hoping will re-engage with a Friday night kiddush um, called Shammai. But <laughs> I go to the Shammai, I'm surprised nobody's launched it yet. There's not like some competitive group. We call it Hillel, right? We call it Hillel. Um, and Hillel was generally considered more lenient, legally lenient. He wants to convert the person who's curious about Judaism. Shammai pushes him away, right? But so this is already fascinating that Shammai is kind of the, the more empathetic one here and we follow Shammai. Let's leave the Talmudic context for another time. Too much to say about that. But Hillel gives in. He says, you're right. The master should free him who, the one who falls in love. So obviously you have, a, you have a, um, an incentive to, uh, 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 to fall in love, I guess. Because um, if you want to marry this free person, um, I mean, you know, generally from a financial perspective, it might be not in your interest to, to get married. Uh, these days, the risk of divorce, um, the costs that come with marriage and, and a whole bunch of other things financially. And actually this generation, going back to the media generation, has figured that out. They get, want to get married at 40, get married at 22. What do you mean? I want to figure myself out first. Get a, you know, have a career. I want to move back into my, my parents' uh, basement for 10 years. You know? So, okay, so the, so the earliest source of mipne tikkun olam comes from freeing a slave. Freeing a slave in the name of their actualization, in the name of populating the world. Now, um, in Gittin 36a, they use the concept a few more ways. The first is preventing mamzerim which is generally translated as bastard children, um, to prevent these children from falling into a legal situation where they can marry no one except another mumzer. Um, they apply this concept of tikkun olam. They also apply it to eliminating an, an aguna. What's an aguna, anyone? Chained. The chained woman who can't get out of a marriage. Um, they want to prevent that problem, so they call it tikkun olam. And also, fascinating enough, the prisbol. Anyone remember what the prisbol is? Okay, it's, it's interesting in biblical economics uh, as a Talmudic response. Shemitah, what's, so what's the problem with the cancellation of debts? There is a Shemitah concept of not working the land every seventh year, but also what emerges from that, and also in the Jubilee of the 50th, but in the seventh year, the cancellation of debts. Now, what, what, what's the economic problem that emerges with that? Nobody wants to make a loan. 
I don't want to make a loan in my fifth year, sixth year, because what's going to happen in the, you know, in the next year is they're going to cancel the, de the debts. So they created a concept um, called Prisbol, um, which prevented the radical biblical idea of the, of the cancellation of debts. So that would be an interesting concept of looking at this, of this political discourse today around student debt. Should, should we forgive debt or not? And the biblical argument versus the rabbinic argument as to how we understand debt and, and loans. Um, and uh, actually, maybe Craig will be a co-teacher of that, working on bankruptcy and how we understand obligation to fulfill one's, uh, uh, one's debts. Um, but anyways, what emerges here is that what, where is the power? Where is the power in tikkun? The power is legal. The power is legal. These are people who don't have a military. Um, it would be far anachronistic to talk about grassroots activism. Um, there's not even community as we know it today. The power is with the law because that is the way that we can actually solve problems in a powerless world, right? Because we are bound by the law of our land in a Roman society or in a Zoroastrian Babylonian culture, wherever we are. And so what can we actually do is within our own small micro-governance, we can try to bring repair by trying to apply the law to our own community differently. Okay, thoughts or questions on, on, that, on that usage there? Well, so it's sort of interesting. The law as we know it in the Talmud and early stages is mostly irrelevant today because the reform movement um, uh, did away with halakha and said, we, we don't believe we're bound by this concept and law is not a meaningful concept in reform Judaism. And orthodoxy froze it. Instead of it being an evolving kind of radical legal process that evolves to its time, it was kind of frozen by codification of Maimonides and the Shulchan Aruch and, um, and modernization, enlightenment that comes, well, we got to slow down change and preserve. Um, and they chose to preserve very specific eras, um, interesting ways. So this notion of Talmudic legal process, which is an, an incredibly dynamic and fascinating, is irrelevant to most today because that conversation of dynamic law is not a part of American Jewish life in, 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 um, in kind of the two most dominant parts of, of, of fervent Judaism, which is kind of the reform institutions, which is the largest uh, 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 denomination, um, or in orthodoxy as we know it today, um, um, uh, and certainly in, in Chabad culture, um, which is kind of the fastest growing denomination, which is not intellectual at all. It's more about kind of cholent and vodka, and, um, which is not a critique. It, 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 they have assessed, and perhaps rightly, that the average American Jew comes for a social experience to synagogue and for good food and drink rather than for authentic spirituality. Um, and so don't, don't have a rich spiritual experience, um, certainly not one that's going to be egalitarian, but actually provide an authentic Judaism, which is going to mean uh, Russian, Russia in the early 20th century, right, or Poland, right, and provide food and drink um, in a way that's going to kind of freeze time. That was their assessment, and it's worked a lot better than the Reform Judaism's assessment, which is going to be that what the American Jews want is, is an egalitarian setting that is going to be more of a warm experience, um, that's going to be more female-driven in egalitarian culture than a male-driven kind of let's go back to the shtetl vision. Those are competing, but reform temples struggling for attendance more and more 
uh, you know, Chabad attendance kind of growing in attendance in the Moors. So then the only place this would play out is kind of in, uh, in a 1970s conservative capital C Judaism or a liberal Orthodox, um, but those are pretty small populations in American Jewish life. You kind of have ultra-Orthodoxy and you have reform. And, and I say reform, really the biggest context, of course, is, is the totally unaffiliated Jew. I'm, so I'm sort of talking with those who are connected here. So, um, so you're right. So yeah, you're right. So, th so the law is something different. Um, they, they, they will always argue in the name of continuity, right? But actually their innovations are done in the name of continuity but are really big breaks in what's happening. Big innovations that happen. So tikkun olam is basically saying change the law. Change the law in the name of, of what? So those cases I mentioned, of freeing the slave, preventing the mumser from getting, not being able to get married, of freeing the woman uh, who's chained, of per, uh, enabling loans, how would you classify what repair means to them? Empowering individuals. Okay. Empowering individuals. What are you going to say? Well, I'm not quite sure what the question means. Okay. It, it, it means yeah. tinkering right. with the existing law to get a socially desirable situation. Yeah. And, and I, I, I'm always struck when I hear somebody lecture on Jewish law, yeah. how near it is yeah. to Anglo-American. Ah, oh, interesting, right. Because that's, you know, you have the civil code, yes. the French code, right. where it's all written down, right. and all you do is find the section. Right, yes. And then you have the Anglo-American right. view where you find the law. You're right. The law is there, but you have to find it. Right, right, yes, <laughs> right, yes. Okay, so interesting, right. Um, wow, so there's a lot to say about that also. Um, um, yes, okay, so yes. So okay, so we, okay, we have two interesting answers here. And, and th was there a third one that was someone was gonna say? Yes? I think adapting. Adapting, okay, okay. Okay, great, so, um, so uh, there, there it needs to be an amendment. There needs to be an amendment. Um, an interpretation, okay, good. So good, yeah, so an interpretation. Uh, um, right, so a new interpretation. Actually, we, see, we already see innovation in the Bible context. Can anyone think of any legal um, innovations that happen in the biblical context? Well, freeing the slaves oh. Okay, good, so there's already slave things that happen, yep. Letting women inherit land. Okay, all right, great. So the, the, uh, the daughters of Slavchad um, say, hey, we're excluded. Right, and so they go, and actually they change the law. Actually, now the the, the women can inherit law. Okay, then you remember um, Ruvain, God, and half of Menashe, two and a half of the tribe say, "We don't want to live in the land. We're kind of happy over here, diaspora Jews." And they say, "Okay, fine. As long as you fight, you can go live over there in the diaspora." That's right. Um, and there's a number of other. Okay, or how, here's another one: Pesach Sheni. What's Pesach Sheni, the second Passover? Very few observe it today. There's not much to observe. But, um, but essentially, those who are like, they weren't pure to bring the Korban uh, Pesach, the, the Passover offering. Say, so, hey, don't exclude us. They get to come a month later and then do their Seder, essentially. It's kind of like you, you chose to go to a movie instead of go to Passover Seder. And like, oh, I feel really bad about that the next day. I should have done that. Fine, come back in a month and you can do your Passover Seder then. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Um, um, Do they, with the soldiers, what do you mean? Oh no, so, 
Oh, 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 it's interesting. If, 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 no, so, so, so no. Today, if you miss it, you miss it, right? Um, but it's an interesting idea, right? If you were a soldier at war, then we, sh we should have kind of made, maybe we could bring it back to life. This idea, for someone like a soldier or someone who has a job they were committed to, right, what would it look like to, you know, make up the date? Yeah. Yeah. And commentary is exactly what's going on in civil society today, mm -hmm. where for years judges would look at legislative history and say, what did Congress need? Yeah, right, right. And now conservative judges say, no, we only look at the law. Right. As passed, there should be no interpretation. And the question is, where you look at your sources Okay, okay, good. So one might suggest here, one might suggest here that they're not taking an original intent approach of, oh, here's actually what was intended in the Torah, but a consequentialist approach. Oh, actually, um, we need a consequence that's going to repair this problem. And so here's going to be the response. We, don't, we know this is different. Uh, actually, whether or not we presume to know what the original intent even was, uh, we're not so interested in that. And we're interested in kind of solving problems right now. So what would it look like in American society for someone to come and say, actually, we need a repair in this country. And there's going to be a little bit of a rupture in response to something. There's going to actually be a shift in how we operate something. Um, and it's interesting to follow the legal discourse and the political discourse around how people talk about change. right? What warrants this type of change? Um, oh, OK, all right, well, all right, we're getting a little far afield. I can't believe we're in the first source. OK, so now we're going to look at the source that um, is, the, um, is the one where we most commonly, those who are synagogue goers, um, is the most common place where we mention this concept, right? And um, some people like the Elenu and some don't. Um, uh, and those who don't, it's usually because they're ready for, to have a snack and, and the service has gone for too long. And this is like the last, one of the last things you say over there. And so I got, we got to do another thing, right? I hope there's not another sermon after this. Um, and so the Elenu, actually does not originate in the daily prayer book. It originates as part of the Rosh Hashanah um, Machsor, part of the Rosh Hashanah service. So, and in a traditional Rosh Hashanah service, that's where Elenu emerges, and that's when the bowing happens onto the floor. Um, how many of you attend a synagogue where actually the clergy or the lay people get on the floor, lay on the floor? But, okay, so here's what happens over there. We don't need to recite the, actually, you know, maybe it is worth it. So anyways, the author of this is, his name is Rav. And Rav is one of the most prolific, uh, prolific. Uh, so, okay, so Rav is the author of this in the third century, the Eleno. It is on us to praise the one, for you didn't make us like the nations of the earth, for they pray to what is empty, breath and emptiness. Actually, it's interesting. This is taken out of modern Sidurim. The, the phrase there is shehem mishkachavim the hevovarik. This was taken out by the censors. Um, the ultra-Orthodox added it back into the prayer book and nobody else did. Yitz Greenberg once said, Yitz Greenberg was once at a synagogue where the Chazan added this back into his tefillah, into his prayer, and he paused the service and said, just because the anti-Semites censored us and took something out doesn't mean we have to put it back in. Right? Because what does it say? All other peoples are praying to what is empty. And actually the gematria, gematria means numerology, meaning the Hebrew letters, if you add up the value of them, it, there's meaning there. Hevel varik 
if you look at it, it comes out to Christianity and Islam. So hidden within this prayer that they are, they are praying to emptiness was a polemic against those who were killing them at the time, um, uh, Christians and Muslims. Okay, so we bow before the sovereign of sovereigns, the Holy One, blessed be, who spread out heavens and founded an earth. Therefore, we hope for you, God, to see quickly the manifest glory of your strength, to cause the idols to pass away from the earth and the unbreathing gods to be cut off, to establish a world under the reign of the Almighty. Right? To, and, um, and all people of flesh will call your name to cause all the wicked of the earth to turn toward you. Okay, so what is the Elenu's vision of a repaired world? No idolatry. It is not social action. It is not a mitzvah day. The repaired world in the, in the vision of Elenu is that all will recognize one God. Everyone will recognize one truth. Everyone will abandon idolatry. Um, now, to be sure, um, that is not just a, a matter of, of theology or dogma. Um, if you take a Platonic vision of that, Plato believed that, that monotheism was a moral idea because if there's one God, there's one moral truth, and if there's multiple gods, there's multiple conflicting truths. So there is a moral vision here to what it means for, to, uh, for the whole world to break from idolatry and embrace one God. Um, nonetheless, this is not a vision of equality and of peace and of justice. This is a vision about God. So the Elenu would not be a good proof text for someone who is arguing that tikkun olam is a central premise of Judaism, meaning we should roll up our sleeves and fight for justice. Um, this is a, a concept of, of, of humility, that there is a God and that God is not us and that God is, is sovereign of the world. Now, interesting enough, some academics argue that letakein, taf, kuf, uh, nun, doesn't emerge until after the first millennium. But the earlier version is taf, chaf, nun. Chaf, not kuf, which is a whole different world, word, and world. Um, um, which would actually mean, actually this is found in Rav Sadia Goen in the 10th century's prayer book. His Sidur has it with a chaf instead of a kuf, which would not mean to repair the world, but to hold it together. To hold the world together, which is very different than the notion of to repair, right? Um, so here in the Elenu, we see an eschatological vision Right? Earlier we saw a legal notion of fixing problems. Here we see an eschatological vision, by which I mean a theology that deals with death, judgment, and souls. Right? Um, beginning to move towards a messianic vision. Right? The messianic vision, um, yes, Isaiah talks about um, that the lion will lie down with the lamb. Um, and that there will be equality and justice. But the, the dominant messianic vision is that the world will accept the creator of the world um, um, is, is certainly a dominant messianic vision. Okay. Um, yes, please. Um, I think I was taught a different Judaism. Okay, good. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution. 
at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So one way the Elenu can be um, re-understood here is actually um, recontextualizing what it means to make God manifest in the world and what it means to break idolatry. Idolatry means lies. It means falsity. Idolatry means serving what is vain, right? God means justice. God means an actualized world. And to bring God into the world for everyone to embrace actually is very much an ethical vision. Great. Okay, wonderful. So let's move to the Genesis Rabbah, Breshit Rabbah, this Midrash here, which is um, uh, also we could spend the whole session on, quite complex. But, um, um, but there's one point I want to pull out of here. Why is it not written about the second day of creation? For it is good, and God saw it, and it is good. It doesn't say that. Rav Hanina says, because on that day, division argument was created. As it is said, let there be a separation between waters above and waters below, right? Everything else is, is a new creation. Here we're looking at a division, which they're, they're saying has a social dimension of argumentation. Rav Tavyomo, um, Rabbi Goodday, actually, I, 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 I think that's probably Talmudic humor, that his name is Tavyomo. Um, if a division that was created for the sake of ordering the world and settling it, here the, the, word, the words in the Midrash, letikuno shel olam, ol yishuvo, right, to repair this world and to settle it, doesn't have an it is good in it, any division to disturb the world, all the more so. So actually what we're starting to see here is that um, uh, part of the question is what, what does repairing look like? is what is the problem of brokenness, right? What type of brokenness is fundamental to the human condition that you can't repair and it's futile to try to repair? Like it would be futile to try to, I'm gonna repair sadness, something fundamental to the human condition. But what actually could be repaired? Um, um, and here the answer might be the, a disruption in the natural order. What, what we're trying to repair is um, a break in the natural order. Now, actually, interesting enough is the question, did God create a perfect or imperfect world? How many of you vote that God created a perfect world? How many of you vote God created a broken world? How many of you are not so sure? Okay, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, great. So the most common, um, or two of the, uh, one of the most common examples, although it's, it's, um, it's laden with meaning and, and, and problems, is um, the most common drusha given that God created humans imperfect um, is, um, uh, is about the male human body. What has to be fixed? Day eight. The, the brit milah, the bris. The male was born imperfect with foreskin. And on day eight, you need to repair him. And that is symbolic that humans and the world are imperfect and that humans have to repair what God made intentionally broken so that the human enterprise makes any sense, right? And part of what's broken. And so that day eight, and so there's a whole bunch of interpretations. Well, what's imperfect about that? Is, it, is, 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 this, is this aesthetically imperfect, right? Maimonides, who is a, an, an, an ascetic, which is an, mostly an anomaly, and he's mostly an ascetic in the power of touch. Uh, Maimonides doesn't th thinks we should limit sex 
and pleasure in a bunch of ways, which is, again, an anomaly. But he thinks um, the Brit Milah happens for the same reason that, um, that women, that, not women, tribal leaders in Africa argue for female genital cutting, which is to reduce sexual pleasure. All these empirical studies today show that actually, um, they don't all show. Many of them show um, that there is not a reduction in sexual pleasure based on the foreskin. Actually, many of them actually show that a lot of sensitivity is lost from the foreskin, which is why some of the, the, the anti-circumcision activists today, what do you call them? The intactivists, I think they call themselves. The intactivists. Part of their argument is, um, and to be sure, some of them are just rabid anti-Semites, but some of them are not. Some of them are not. And actually, there's a growing movement among young progressive Jews to be against circumcising their kids. Um, uh, it, it's very aligned with the anti-vaccination movement also. Uh, and actually, interesting enough, very aligned with, um, did you know there's a whole movement out there that, um, that it believes the world is flat? No, 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 a it's a movement. It's a movement. And it, it's aligned with the anti-vax. That all the modern science is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. I, I, and I hope I'm not offending anyone here. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't so much hope I'm not, um, but I a little bit hope I'm not. Um, I, I try not to be an offensive person, but I, it's that tension between shalom and emet, between peace and truth. So I kind of hope I'm not offending, but I also believe in science. I really do, and I'm sorry. I, I, you got to believe in something. Um, that's one of the things I believe in. Um, but um, so what are we talking about? Uh, 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 oh yeah. So so any so anyways, the circumcision is a sign that that the that the, that the, the male in particular. Oh yeah. So Maimonides thinks we want to limit pleasure for for um, uh, uh, for the man so that he's not so sexually driven. So if sex is a little bit less uh, pleasurable, then the man won't pursue it every day, everywhere he can get it, um, and rather this will serve as a reminder to him. Um, to have some controls and find a balance because he's Aristotelian and everything's about the golden mean. We want to find a balance. And so too, um, uh, we should find a balance here as well. Someone was, what's that? Read Jephthah the Store. Excuse me? Jephthah the Store, a book a number of years ago in which the Orthodox people, the guy cut a hole in the sheet so they shouldn't see his wife during. Well, oh, the hole in the sheet? Yeah. That people think they have, that, that they're having sex through the sheet? Okay, so there's, you, you've all heard this, this false fallacy, yeah. So you, you, you know where this comes from? People who are walking, so in Jerusalem, a lot of folks don't have dryers because, I mean, it's just more expensive to live in. So they hang their clothes on dryers. Remember that? People used to hang their clothes on dryers. <laughs> no, no, you know, on, on, what do you call it? Safe, you have a safety pin and you put it on a clothesline, a clothespin. Yeah, so <laughs> that's a safety pin. So, so they would hang their talus or their tzitzit, katan, outside. So how, how does it look? It's a, it's, a, it's a flat garment with a hole in the middle to go over the head, right? And so they see us, and so they say, oh, they have sex through the sheet, right? They have sex through the, through the sheet. So it's totally not true. Nobody's having sex through a sheet. There's no, yes, please. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Okay, thank you. So the origin is Abraham. Abraham is 99 years old, and Abraham is asked by God to circumcise himself, and he does it. And then Mo Moses, Moshe is too late with his son, so his wife does it, which is the, the legal argument for why a woman can be a mohelet, a moyo. Um, um, uh, you know, not to because... Okay, so actually ancient, um, those who study ancient societies, uh, I'm sorry if I'm bursting another uh, common assumption, demonstrate, uh, 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 um, what do you call them, uh, archaeologists, not archaeologists, uh, anthropologists, 
um, or, um, historical anthropologists demonstrate that actually circumcision precedes the Hebrew scriptures. So it may actually be that ancient societies viewed it as more civil and noble to do this thing to their boys. And so ancient Israelites did it also. And then, and then, it, and then for whatever reason, it became included as part of the law. Um, uh, nonetheless, um, w one of the reasons given um, is that it makes Jews different. A lot of law emerged as a way of differentiation. But those who want to give the Tameha mitzvot, the reasons for the mitzvot, want to show that, um, uh, uh, that there is a moral reason to this as well. And so there's a whole range of, uh, of, of responses that are, that are given to that. We could do a whole session on circumcision. It'd be fascinating, actually. There's a ton to talk about. And there's a ton of Kabbalah on it as well. Um, uh, sorry? Aha, uh -huh. yeah, right. And, in, and today still, actually, it is one of the requirements. I don't know um, what's happening in, in, um, uh, in some circles, but, uh, uh, but traditionally, and I think all, all the movements, um, are requiring circumcision for a, a man to convert to Judaism, right? So what do they do if they're already circumcised? Right, yeah. Hatafat um, dam, uh, they just draw a drop of blood. So what do you do if the person's, uh, what do you call it, hemophiliac? Is that what it's called, hemophiliac? That, there's a whole interesting legal discourse there. That can a hemophiliac convert? Uh, okay, all right. And okay, so um, um, okay, so two. Okay, so now continuing on this theme of the natural order, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, the, the Midrash on, on Kohelet, see the work of God. This is a famous text, and it's a really important one. See the work of God. Who can fix what He twisted? In the time that the Holy One created the first human, he took him and brought him around all the trees of Garden of Eden and said to him, see my works, how lovely and praiseworthy they are. And all I created for your sake, I created it. Ah, for the sake of the human being. Put your mind to this, that you don't ruin or destroy my world, my olam, olami. For if you bring ruin, there is no one who will set the world right after you. No one will be able to... Um, uh, Latakain, the world again. So environmentalists love this source. It's used very commonly in environmentalist circles, Jewish environmentalist circles, um, that, that no one can bring repair but us. But also it, it, it's a, along this earlier theme that tikkun olam means preserving a natural order of what we were, what we were, uh, what we were given. Okay. Now, moving on, let's skip a few sources. Let's jump to Maimonides. Oh, Maimonides is just fascinating. So here's what Maimonides or Rambam says in 12th century. Oh, fascinating idea I just encountered. And if you already knew it, then um, it's wonderful because I just learned it and it's amazing to learn something that you didn't already know. So there's a whole academic idea out there actually that Maimonides converted to Islam. And a lot of great data that he did that. Um, that he converted to Islam um, at one period of time. Um, which is at, uh, and now it may have been that he authentically converted to Islam for a short period of time before he went back, or it may have been that it was the only way he could survive, um, or it may be that he simply had to dress as a Muslim to work in the medical profession, in the garb, and then actually the, a, a guy brings him to trial when he's in Spain that he saw him dressed as a Muslim when he lived in, in uh, excuse me, in, 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 um, in Egypt, that he saw him dressed as a Muslim in Spain, and now he's dressed as a Jew, and he warns death, because you can't leave Islam um, if you're Muslim. And so he, he warns death. Um, 
But then the argument made in court is that, um, that you, can't be, uh, you can't convert by coercion. And that he was, it was through coercion that, he, that his conversion took place. And so um, he's free. So anyways, uh, if you're interested in that idea, there's three academic books that explore this idea, which are really fascinating. OK, so here's what Maimonides says. Um, if you look at the one that says Hilchot Sanhedrin 23.9, every judge who judges truth unto its deepest truth, even for one hour, it's as if they fix the whole world entirely, tikain et kol haulam, and cause the Shekhinah, the feminine divine presence, to rest upon Israel. As it says in Tehillim, God stands in the council of the divine. So what for Maimonides does tikkun olam look like? What is judge's truth? Right. That's a good question. So the Hebrew there, v'chol dayan shedan din emet. So anyone who brings a true judgment to happen in the judicial process, that person has repaired the world. So what, is it, what does this concept mean to, in a Maimonidean context? Justice is divine. And the world is repaired by bringing order back an order that, that preserved justice, tikkun olam. So again, this is not what we're going to look at in the 1950s, 1960s reform activism movement in the same context. Um, but he understands still the power of the law um, to promote and enable um, justice, and that that's what repair of the world means. Okay. Now, now let's look at the next Maimonides, because it's a little complicated, and you can come to very different conclusions here. Any, anyone, who kill, anyone who kills people without being clearly seen or without being given a warning, even with one witness, since there isn't enough evidence for them to be found guilty by a court, the king has authority to execute them and to thereby fix the world, the takein ha'olam, according to what the, our needs. Okay, so first of all, the, the phrase tukun olam is not a later invention. It's all over the place, right? This idea, right? It's used very differently. And now this is interesting. Now, um, here's I, what I don't think Maimonides is, is primarily talking about, even though it's the literal read of this. I don't think what he's saying is the death penalty is good, and I don't think he's primarily saying that we support despots' tyranny, you know, that essentially um, a king can go around the courts and kill whoever they want, right, by executive privilege. Now, a, a, literal, a literal read would, would lead you to such a conclusion. Because essentially, as you know, the rabbis did away with the biblical model of death penalty, right? The Bible's clear there's a death penalty, and the rabbis made it impossible. Because what do they say? Basically, you had to go up to the guy who's about to kill someone and walk up to him and say, do you know you're about to kill him? And they say, yes. I say, do you know the penalty, uh, these two witnesses, do you know what the penalty is for killing them would be the penalty of death? And they say, yes. Um, and basically affirm the whole process of what it would look like in a way that would never really actually uh, be possible. Um, and so they basically made um, uh, um, uh, the death penalty impossible. Then yeah. To, then they had to testify as to the thickness of the stem on the fig hanging on the adjacent tree. Okay, okay, yes. And, right, to testify that they knew everything within the context of what was happening, that they were valid witnesses, and a whole bunch of other things. But essentially, but the law remained that, that death penalty was impossible by the courts, by the Sanhedrin, but the king still might have some executive privileges to, to have order. So Imani's saying, actually, the king killing a murderer is preserving the order of society, because everyone knows the guy did it. 
right? Now, this is like horrific from a modern legal perspective, right? The president is going to take the executive privilege to imprison and then kill a prisoner of war, or whatever the case is, um, because he knows the real truth in a way that can't be proven in a court of law. Um, uh, and so there are these legislative and judicial checks on the executive uh, branch. But here, there's not such a check. The king is allowed, the king of Israel is allowed to do such things. What does authority mean? What, do you, what does that mean? Uh, so the Hebrew is reshut. Yesh lamelech reshut. The king has this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, reshut really means the reshut, the permission. The permission, um, like birshut. You say politely, if you start, you start talking, you say birshut, like with the permission of you, may I speak, uh, that the king has, um, the, is granted the right, not the obligation. Right. right. Um, but so another way to understand this text is that um, what Maimonides is talking about in Tikkun Olam is preserving a social order and that the government needs to take some measures um, beyond, like the executive branch essentially needs to take some measures beyond the, the, the strictness of the law itself in order to preserve a social order. Um, now, now, such a concept could be used in ways that some of us might find horrific, and some of us might find um, an important check. But rather than the Gittin, the Talmudic concept, change the law, repair the law, the idea is the law remains what it is, and there's another system that goes beyond the law that we need to do to preserve. So there's a role outside of government or outside the judicial branch to bring repair. Okay? All right. So um, I'm just going to plow forward if we can hold thoughts and questions for a few moments to get through some stuff. Um, oh, man, there's so much we have to skip here to kind of move forward. Um, but all right, but let's do the Sefer Achinuch. Sefer Achinuch is the 13th century. He's really working as a commentary upon Maimonides, um, going through the 613 biblical mitzvot as Maimonides laid them out and commenting on them. And he says, to not cause a naive, unaware person to stumble on the road, right? There's a biblical mitzvah of lifne iver, which means don't, um, not to cause a blind person to stumble, which, by the way, it might not be biblically prohibited to put a, bl a, a, stump, a block before a physically blind person. I don't think they understood it literally. Um, but they really mean to enable someone, um, uh, to enable someone in some way. So this is interesting. The root of the mitzvah is known for the way of setting right the world and settling it. Tikkun ha'olam v'yushuvo is to guide people and to give them and all their actions good advice. And so did the sages say, it is forbidden to sell weapons oh, or anything that has in it the capacity to harm many, many not, uh, to non-Jews, except if it is to sell them so that they can defend us. And so too it is forbidden to sell them to a Jew who sells to non-Jews or to Jewish criminals. And all of it is forbidden because of the command before a blind person did not place a stumbling block. So they're working on the assumption, which is not an unfair assumption, um, that Gentiles are primarily people who will be hostile and violent to Jews. Of course, that's not an assumption we should operate by today. But there's a lot of good data as to why they would operate by such an assumption in their time period. Um, but essentially, tikkun olam means don't put um, weapons into the hands of those who will misuse them, right? Um, into the hands of those who will do, uh, um, uh, cause acts of violence. So there are some activists in Israel who are looking at such sources today because the state of Israel is selling weapons um, 
two uh, regimes that are committing atrocities. Um, and so um, there's a whole conversation that's happening of, um, of whether or not they, they should do that um, or should be allowed to do that. Um, and this also emerges in conversations, which we could do a whole other session on, of showing the tensions in Jewish tradition around gun rights versus gun controls. And to be sure, just like the abortion debate, the tradition does not come out squarely in one side. It's a complex back and forth around how we understand the role of, of weapons for, for self-preservation and also reducing violence in the world. Um, that, that has its complexity to it. So here we see the notion of regulation. We should regulate corporations and governments for societal protection. The government and, and businesses should not be allowed to sell whatever they want to whoever they want, right? That actually there's a social order we want to preserve. Okay, if you have questions or thoughts, please mark them down. We're going to skip over this holy Zohar, the Zohar Kodesh, the, the, the uh, prominent work of, of Kabbalah. And uh, actually, let's do one source, just because it's so short and so good. If you go to the last source of the Zohar I have there, it's very short. The, now, the awakening caused by sacrifices, by korbanot, by animal sacrifices, is restitution for the world. Uh, of course, this phrase is in Aramaic, titikuna da'alma. It's in Aramaic, another proof um, that the academics are right, that this is written by Moses de Leon in the 13th century rather than the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the, in the first century or second century. Um, 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 but, and, and so anyways, the awakening of these sacrifices repairs the world and brings blessing for all the worlds. Now, oh, so this is an important idea also. It says in the Zohar, Tikkun Olam, there's not one world. There's many worlds. There's thousands of worlds out there. What world are we talking about? Because on a mystical level, there's the physical world, and then there's various mystical dimensions below of what actual reality is. So which world are we actually looking to repair? A physical world of injustice? A spiritual world of disconnect? Um, and so for the Zohar, um, and I show this also because it's such a contrast to how we normally think of tikkun olam, this is an early, an, um, an early stage of ritual is repair. Repairing the world in this vision happens through the form of ritual, right? Rather than it actually transforming us the way many modern people understand ritual, ritual is there to transform me. They understand that the ritual has a magical, if you will, component to it that brings repair, beyond us. That's the way someone taking communion in a Catholic context might understand it, that this communion might not transform me, but something happens to the world by taking this communion. It's the way someone might understand making kiddush on a Friday night, and it's the way other rationalists certainly wouldn't understand, um, which certainly would not understand this. Okay, skipping over a whole bunch of other stuff, amazing, awesome stuff. Um, uh, some interpersonal things that emerge. We now see um, Rav Shlomo Marini, um, by the way, I, I owe credit. There's so many sources on Tikkun Olam out there. I owe the translations on these. Normally I translate sources, but David Seidenberg, someone who, who we haven't had here, but maybe we will one day, Rabbi David Seidenberg, uh, is, uh, gets credit for the translations on this uh, source sheet. So thank you, uh, Rabbi David Seidenberg. Um, okay, so if you look at his source here, it says, no more will violence be heard in your land, destruction and shattering in, in your borders, and you will call salvation your walls and your gates, praise, as, uh, from Isaiah. As Craig said, a dominant messianic vision is, um, is justice or the removal of violence. The character of humanity will be repaired. 
and all the people of the city will pursue justice and uprightness. And these with those, and even when they are outside the city, they will be secure from destruction and cataclysm in the manner of God's salvation and the world's restoration. Tikkun olam. A spiritual revolution that will happen on the level of midot, the character of people, right? For some people, tikkun olam means a government that operates in a more just way. It is a systemic revolution. For other people, the revolution is a spiritual one, right? That the change in society will not happen on a political, governmental level. The change will happen on a human nature level. People will fundamentally operate differently based upon their midot, right? Essentially, people will live with an elevated consciousness of empathy towards other beings, not operating by a selfish motive, but primarily by a motive of, of, of altruism or of otherness. And once that's achieved, we will have a repaired world because there's no going back. Um, uh, Steven Pinker, um, if anyone has read his book, uh, The Better Angels, um, essentially argues, he's a psychologist at Harvard, um, empirically for progress, showing that there have been less violent deaths every century for the last many centuries at hand, that many people think, because we watch the news, we're more in touch with death and violence of war, that we're in a more dangerous world than ever before. He actually argues that the Enlightenment leads to a more civilized society. Um, and you can read the book to argue, to understand why. And you should also read his, uh, the, his 25 detractors who, uh, who, who strongly disagree. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, what does Rabbi Nachman, the founder of the Breslov movement, say? One finds, since the world is created for my sakes, like three sources down, I think, I need to see and look in every moment into repairing the world. Ah, in every moment, he says, we need tikkun olam. Every moment. And to replenish what the world lacks. Ulmalot chisaron. And to pray on their behalf. So he takes a spiritual approach as well, that actually this notion of repairing the world should be a part of our consciousness at all times. This notion that we are interconnected with all life, with all existence, with all oneness, with all unity. And this is a prayer process and also a spiritual consciousness of what is happening in the world in a way that doesn't bring us to depression, to, to like be fully aware of this pain in the world, but in a way that empowers us towards Tikkun. Again, he was the one we opened with today. If you believe in ruin, you have to believe in repair. Um, that this is a part of our spiritual consciousness of all time. So if anyone says, oh, Tikkun Olam, that's fake Judaism. Actually, a guy just wrote a book. He quotes me like 10 times in the book. I didn't read the book, but I'm told this is the case. Um, wrote a book of how Tikkun Olam Judaism is, is destroying Judaism, right, he argues. So uh, I, I hope none of you buy this book, but, but I, I, always like to, I always like to quote my detractors because they're out there. They're like really out there. But this guy wrote a book. I mean, he wrote a, I, there's another guy who wrote a book uh, with, with so, I, I, so, so I always tell people to check the footnotes and, and, and let me know just how many times did it show up. Actually, but, um, but, but Daniel Gordas just uh, responded today um, to something and said that he just wrote a book. Uh, actually, let me bracket that. Let me bracket that. Okay. Um, Okay, so, um, so anyways, does tikkun olam actually have an authentic role in Judaism? We'll come back to that in the conclusion. Let's make sure I keep 10 minutes. 
for the conclusion. But here's Rabbi Nachman. We should hold this idea of tikkun olam in our thought at all time. If we had time to look at Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz in the next source, uh, okay, we will, we will, because I'm not very good at restraint at this, in this regard. In the early 19th century, Lithuania, he says, the essence of loving neighbors is that a person would love all members of the human species from whatever people they are from and from whatever language they speak for each is a person in God's image and in God's likeness, like him or herself, and engaged in settling the world, or building, or plowing, or sowing, or distributing, or selling, or whatever kind of craftsperson, or one who figures out how to attain the needs of the world with wise designs and inventions. For by means of these things, the world is established according to its proper arrangement. Ha'olamo made katikono. It's a little bit backwards, but he means the same thing. And is sustained in its wholeness. Umit kayem muto, and all things come to exist, which God created to do, and which he has done, and behold, it is very good. So if someone ever tells you, ah, Jews are about love, excuse, Jews are about law, and Christians are about love, know that they're oversimplifying, and yes, there are periods of time that that is true, but also we see such a source here that repairing the world is primarily about love, reestablishing love for all of God's creatures, all of God's inhabitants in the world, because of all of God's um, people are created in the image of God. And that's when we repair the world, when that love returns to the world, where people move out of a tribal framework. Tribalism is not all bad, only fundamentalist tribalism, but a tribalism where people, yes, take care of their own tribe, but also transcend their tribe, because it's okay if Mexicans want to primarily fight for Mexicans, right? And if Japanese Americans, you know, feel like, you know, really aligned with Japanese Americans, and if Jews feel an obligation to take care of Jews, Right? And if black people feel more pain when a black person is killed than a white person, that's okay to feel aligned with your people right? um, as, as you identify. Um, but if we stop there, there's a real problem. And so we have to see also a love for all people and to fight for the dignity of all people. And that's what Rav Pinchas Horowitz, this Hasidic thinker in Sefer Habrit, understands to happen. And he has a few other amazing sources here, which you have to read. Again, this is 19th century, 18th century, 18th century Lithuania, a place where there's hostility from Gentiles. Big hostility, pogroms, right? And yet, he, he has this idea that, um, that all people are created in the image of God, but Salam Elohim, and that that means that to repair the world means that that love will return, not in a transactional um, type of way or uh, in, a, in, a pro- in a process of reciprocity, but in the context of, of, at, of actualizing godliness in the world. Okay, let's skip to Rav Ben-Sion Eisenstadt. Rav Ben-Sion Eisenstadt in New York, oh, in the new land. The new land, the golden of Medina, of the 20th century New York, Eisenstadt. Isaac returned and dug the wells of water, and the Philistines had stopped them up. Isaac digs and brings forth, invents and develops. He improves the world, Metakein Olam. And the Philistines stop up the wells. They strive for the destruction of the world and its depletion. So here, Eisenstadt, similar to Horwitz, talks about innovation in modernity. You might thought you could only repair the world if your life was committed to a profession which is inherently moral. But actually, if you are doing work that adds value to society, you are a part of tikkun olam. If you work in the field of science that adds scientific data to the world, if you work in any field of law that brings order, if you work in a medical field where you bring healing, if you are a teacher, if you work in any field um, where you are bringing some innovation or adding to society, that is, that makes sense that it's emerging in 20th century New York, 
right, where people are working hard, you know, in, in, in new industries, and, you know, and in such a time period where they want to make meaning of such, such type of work. Um, and of course, if someone has a profession that adds no value or, 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 or detracts value from society, um, hopefully that's not true, then one might think about how to engage in philanthropy um, or in other acts outside of their work to, to make such a contribution. Okay, um, I wanna get to the, to the pulling this together very soon, but I, I, we can't, I wanna give one source of Rav Cook and one Ashlag um, before we uh, pull it together. Okay, so the one Rav Cook of the three that I have here will be the first. A reminder that he is the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of pre-state Israel of Palestine at the time. Right in the over there in the 20s and 30s, and um, and he is a rationalist and a mystic. I know that's a paradox, and a pluralist and an, and um, and and very orthodox. He's wearing a strimal, um, but he is a person that the that the ultra orthodox in his time are heavily critiquing because he's he's trying to build massive bridges rather than uh, put up walls. And he says here any idea that abandons restoration of the world and the ordering of states and floats in the spiritual air alone and takes glory in the power of fixing souls and their success only is founded upon a lie that has no legs to stand on. So he says, you might have thought tikkun olam was a spiritual concept. He's, he's offering a polemic to the orthodox of his time. It's a spiritual concept. Make everybody from. If everyone was just religious, we'd repair the world, right? Just take care of the Israelites. Take, just take care of the state. But he says, actually, repairing the world is indeed a universalistic concept, and it's a physical concept. As Salantar famously said, addressing someone else's physical needs is addressing my spiritual needs. Our mandate is not to repair someone's soul, but to repair someone's physical needs, ultimately. Right? So Rav Cook says that this is not a spiritual concept, but a physical concept. And so he is dealing with state building, ultimately. Okay. And Ashlag, Ashlag if you go to the, um, go to the first Ashlag, he, um, he is called the Baal HaSulam, the master of the ladder. He is a mystic, big, big Kabbalist. And he overlaps with Rav Kook for 12 or 13 years in, in Jerusalem um, when, when Rav Kook dies early in 1935. And he, and he just moves to Jerusalem. And he is a student or a follower of his. And he says, it's impossible to repair the world, Latakian HaOlam, in religious matters before securing, the world, for, securing for the world economic reparation. Hatikun hakalkali. And I love that, that phrase because for so long, if you say to anyone Jewish in America, tikkun, they say olam. And actually, had we extended this, we would see that tikkun has many, many different, um, uh, what do you call it an uh, antecedent? Is an antecedent only the, the end of a word or it can also be the, the word after a word? Anyone know? Okay, okay. So I'll have to, I'll, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Uh, Suffix? It'd be a suffix? Okay, so anyways, so anyways, we talk about tikkun olam, repairing the world, but there's also tikkun atzmi, repair of the self, tikkun bayit, repair of the home, tikkun kahal, the repair of our community, tikkun medina, repair of the state, tikkun hakalkali, repair of the economic situation, right? That, that just to repair the world would be superficial if it didn't have all these other elements of repair that come with it. Okay. So here's what I want to suggest in conclusion. We'll take some closing thoughts and questions here. The first thing I want to suggest is that, yes, um, in response to critics, tikkun olam is an authentic Jewish phrase 
that spans throughout the millennia of Jewish thought, the last two millennia. And, um, 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 and, um, and we, only brought, we only looked at maybe 15 sources, but we could have brought a few hundred others, um, maybe a few thousand even, but let's say a few hundred of traditional sources um, th uh, that emerged. So yes, it is, is an, an authentic phrase, uh, but the critics are also right that the phrase may take up too much space in defining Jewish life. That actually this phrase as it's used today, if you ask, um, if you ask a 13-year-old at, at his or her bar bat mitzvah, what is Judaism about? They might say tikkun olam, um, and they might mean that in a context which is not reflected perfectly in any of, the, of these sources, um, um, by which they might mean um, having a mitzvah day on a Sunday where you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the homeless which is certainly a good thing, but they might define that as the central vehicle of Jewish values, which, want, which as someone myself who believes Judaism is holistic, it's about a lot of different things. It's about God. It's about community. It's about ethics. It's about theology. It's about, um, it's about, it's about really dozens of things, not just one concept. Um, I, I would argue would be a watered-down Judaism to be about one concept. So that's the second thing I want to think. The third thing I want to say is that the problem from these sources is that very different ideologies can emerge from the reading of these texts. This does not automatically push someone towards a far left, a left, a centrist, or a conservative uh, politic. Um, you can construct a whole different range of political visions and ideologies based upon these sources. All they merely suggest, for the most part, is that the world is broken and that humans are partners with the divine to repair that brokenness, right? And that it has a spiritual component to it. Going, again, going back to Lurianic Kabbalah, where Tikkun Olam means doing meets vote to repair the broken vessels on a cosmological level. Right? It might mean a legal process for legal scholars to address to make sure there's justice in society and in the community. It might mean um, on an economic or on a societal level, as Rav Cook and Rav Ashlag are dealing with an early Zionist thought. Right? It might mean business innovation, as Eisenstadt and Hurwitz started talking about. It might talk about love or about the human psychology. A whole bunch of different things. It doesn't necessarily lead us um, to that. But what it does mean is that we are life-affirming and this world-affirming. Rather than affirm the heavens or some other world, tikkun olam throughout all this time period is about affirming our presence and our responsibility in this world, right? At the very least, it means that. Um, and it also raises interesting questions about the process of change, that it's not up to God to create change, they argue. Um, yes, it is revelation inspired, but the Torah has, the Bible has a radical utopian egalitarian vision of society. And the rabbis have a very incremental vision that we have achieved justice in very measured incremental steps towards a common good, as opposed to a biblical model. They really kind of, again, reinvented what was happening. I also want to mention that Tikkun Olam has dangers. It can be misused. Tikkun Olam is used by Mayor Kahana. It's used by Yitzhak Ginsburg, fanatics, real fanatics. Um, it's, it could be used by tyrants. It's, and they invoke Pinchas. Pinchas in the Bible, as you recall, is someone who kills to prevent intermarriage, right? They, uh, a fanatical view of tikkun olam, right, um, that emerges from the JDL, right, this, this, um, this vision that, that really promotes a Jewish supremacism, a Jewish terrorism, ultimately. 
that Jews can, should take matters in their hands and commit acts of violence. Uh, Yes, yes, violence uh, to prevent violence, or certainly, yes. So, so to, to be slightly more charitable to that, um, to that worldview, yes, they, they would argue, um, they would argue never again means, um, excuse my language, this will be a little intense for me to say, even though it won't sound so intense, like never F with the Jews again, right? The army's gonna be strong as hell, and if you come into our synagogue with a gun, we're gonna have 50 guns uh, locked and loaded ready for you, right? So um, uh, that, is, um, that is a vision of Judaism that, that, um, that some advocate for. And as an ideology, I think, has a place at the table. Um, but when taken into fanatical acts of terrorism, I think it doesn't have a seat at the table, such as Mayor Kahana is, is, was a terrorist. Was right? later on, later, yeah, later on. The beginning of the, uh, the, beginning of the program was basically a self-defense thing. Like oh, yes, OK, right. So at earlier stage, right, so, th so there were earlier Jewish terrorists in the building of the Israel state who like bombed the hotel, for example, and did a whole bunch of other things. I know that might make someone uncomfortable to say the phrase like Jewish terrorists. I don't use that so commonly. But anyone who acts, does acts of terror to innocent people to, you know, uh, would be called a terrorist. Um, the Stern gang, th groups like that. Of course, terrorism is, um, is not such a... Um, uh, uh, okay, right, that, that's a whole other conversation. And okay, but here's what I do want to suggest: is that actually those who are interested in a more authentic expression of Hebrew terms that are authentically throughout the tradition used for what some people call today Jewish social justice, by which they might mean helping the poor, they might mean uh, supporting the downtrodden, they might mean lifting up the vulnerable, they might mean fighting on behalf of those who lack legal protections. Um, there are other phrases which be more effectively rooted in that work. Tikkun olam was a little bit of a stretch historically to, to suggest that, but the word tzedek, the words mishpat, the word chesed, the phrase halakta bedrachav, emulating the divine, are used throughout history to mean we should prioritize the vulnerable. Again, not to sway a verdict in a judicial case, which should be fair to all parties, the rich and the poor alike, but, um, but in a social activist type of context, that we have an increased responsibility to those who are most vulnerable and at risk. And there are other phrases which most authentically mean that, right? Um, so that's, so, so, okay, so here's the caveats I want to give. Tikkun olam, beautiful, wonderful, we should only enhance it. Um, yes, it's a really complicated phrase that can mean lots of different things. Um, there are other words which might be more helpful. It can also be used in ways where people have, think they have the absolute truth and might actually cause violence in society um, or might not even be engaged in the discourse of ideas because they have a simple, simple idea of far-left progress um, or of far-right far conservatism. And so they might just invoke a phrase and actually not have to think about anything. I'm just doing tikkun olam. Um, um, and there are other phrases which might be more authentically rooted in ways that can give more inspiring text to promote people to do more serious work to, to repair society. Also, that repair cannot just happen on the global level, but has to happen on a national level, has to happen on a communal level, has to happen on a familial level, and on a personal spiritual level, which is to say um, that healing has to happen um, for individuals. Um, as part of a healing on a, on a broader level. And, um, and I'll end with these two questions. 
Um, the first question is, one might, if one wanted to contextualize these sources, ask the question, where is your power? That the way they understand tikkun olam is based upon where they held power at that time. When you had less physical power, tikkun olam was a spiritual concept or a, a halachic concept, right? For example, Lurianic Kabbalah, we're powerless. But you can repair the world as a shoemaker by sitting in your shop and doing a mitzvah with the holy kavanah of God present in the world and we're repairing, and that's going to have a cosmic effect on the world. But when you're Eisenstadt and you're in New York, we don't have any time for that, right? I want to be an inventor. I want to be a builder. I want to go build a business. I want to change the world. I want to build an enterprise, right? Um, or if you're Rav Cook, we want to build a state. Right? Once you're in modernity and there's more power to the individual, more power to the Jew, then the notion of tikkun olam be, uh, is about building power to actualize that, that power for good in society. That's one question is, is where is your power and how is that linked to the repair you bring? And the question I'll leave us with, the question might not be so hard as to is the world broken? I suggest most of us would acknowledge at least some significant breaks in the world. Um, and the question might not be so difficult for us, can the world be repaired or aspects of the world be repaired, right? Um, as we say, to repair Talmudically and, and also in the Quran, word for word, to repair one, to save one life is to save the whole world. So a small tikkun might actually bring a global tikkun. But the question I leave us with is not, is the world broken? Is not, can we bring repair? But what is my role? in bringing that tikkun. Like Viktor Frankl famously said, the question is not what is the meaning of life, but what is the meaning of my life, right? So I leave us with that. Tikkun olam is complicated, um, but it's also personal. What is the legacy each of us wishes to leave intellectually, spiritually, politically, as to bringing some repair to the world? Thank you all so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.